Now, I want to introduce uh, to you all our guest speaker for the morning is going to be Hans Borsema. He is a professor, he's the J.I. Packer Chair of Theology at Regent College in Vancouver. And he is a professor of doctrinal theology as well as a history of theology. So he comes with a rich understanding of God's work, not only in, uh, throughout the scriptures, but also throughout church history. And he also is going to, starting next year, be a professor at Neshota House, which is an Anglican school of theology. Um, and he is going to not be preaching on our Galatians text. We're going to divert a little bit from our sermon series, but he's going to be focusing on this Mark passage, which gives us a little bit of the context of the kind of kingdom that God is seeking to sow into the world. So let's invite Hans to come forward and preach for us. Shall we pray? Merciful God and Father, eternal King of the universe, we bow in adoration and praise before your holy throne. You are the one who in Christ has made us. You are the one who in him also makes us new. And so we offer everything that we have to you. We pray that we may more and more grow into our Lord Jesus Christ. That you would renew us, you'd cleanse us, and that you would prepare us to see you face to face. Also through this morning's worship. In your mercy. Amen. The readings that we, uh, that we just went through this morning go against the grain. After all, you and I would never have anointed David king of Israel, and neither would we ever have used a seed, a mustard seed of all things, to explain the kingdom of God. For a king, you and I would have taken the eldest and the tallest. And for the kingdom, well, we might have chosen perhaps an image of a mountain or a rock, not a mustard seed. And it's not just the suitability of these metaphors that, that are at stake. What really matters ultimately is the question, does this king, does this kingdom have a fighting chance? Why bet the future on a little shepherd's boy? Why wager your life on a little seed? Why this unassuming kingdom? Both the story of Samuel anointing David in 1 Samuel 16 and Jesus' parables about the seed in Mark chapter 4 make the same counterintuitive move. One by one, Jesse's sons walk past 
the old prophet. First is Eliab. Samuel makes the same assumption about a king that you and I would make. The eldest, the tallest, it's got to be him. But the Lord says to Samuel, don't look on the appearance or on the height of his stature. I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. The Lord looks on the, not on the outward appearance. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. Then comes Abinadab, Shammah. Every one of his seven sons walks past Samuel. Finally, Samuel looks up. The same puzzling look you and I would have had. The Lord chose none of these. And when it's Samuel's prodding, Jesse acknowledges that, yes, there's one more boy. Right. The youngest. Sent off to keep the sheep. It's then that Samuel hears the Lord speak clearly. Arise. Anoint him, for this is he. The youngest. Number eight. Shepherd's boy. A rather unassuming king. Well, Jesus' two parables, Mark 4 are similarly odd. Now, sure, the stories aren't anything out of the ordinary. In the first, the farmer scatters seed, and when he goes about his daily business, he sleeps, rises night and day, it says. Meanwhile, the seed sprouts and grows. The earth produces by itself. Automate, it says literally. The farmer does nothing while the earth produces first the blade then the ear then the full grain in the ear we read see every day regular pattern how grain grows it's what you'd expect except not as a picture of the kingdom it is a rather unassuming kingdom. And then Jesus' second story about a mustard seed, smallest of all seeds on earth, growing out into this 10-foot bush, providing shades even for the birds to nest in. Again, the disciples would have seen this on a daily basis. Nothing strange about it, but... A mustard seed, picture of the kingdom, a strangely unassuming kingdom, one would think. Whether it is David's being anointed or the seed being sown, either way, the picture is that of an unassuming king, an unassuming kingdom. The reason? Both are pictures of an unassuming God. 
Remember that beautiful hymn in Philippians chapter 2? But Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Our God is an unassuming God. The only thing this God assumes is human flesh. David and the seed, they're one and the same thing. Both to us speak of the incarnation. Both tell about the eternal Son of God assuming human flesh. God in the flesh. That is the shepherd's boy. That is the mustard seed. Now it's true, the Samuel story tells us about a king and the parables in Mark about a kingdom. And yet, David, the seed, they're one and the same. King, kingdom are no different when it comes to Jesus. For this incarnate shepherd of the sheep, he is the kingdom. As one of the very earliest theologians in the church, Origen once put it, just as Christ is wisdom, just as he is righteousness itself, just as he is truth itself, so he too is the kingdom itself. In the incarnation, king and kingdom are one. Jesus is the king, yes, but he is the kingdom as well. For in him, the unassuming king, the unassuming kingdom has arrived. Now if the king is a shepherd's boy, the kingdom, a tiny seed. Where do you and I fit in? God chooses the last and the least. David, the shepherd's boy. God also becomes the last and the least. Jesus, the servant. You and I, well, we seem to remain on the side, sleeping and rising night and day while God grows the seed. We simply look on, watching the mustard plant grow to full size. In an unassuming kingdom, is there any place left for you and me? Well, that is where that psalm comes in that we read during the song, Psalm 20. With an unassuming king and an unassuming kingdom goes an unassuming subject or citizen. Indeed, our posture toward king and kingdom simply is, as that psalm is, a matter of prayer. This psalm, this beautiful psalm, Psalm 20, 
is one in which you and I are praying for the king, for King David, for the anointed one, the Messiah, verse 6 calls him. Every one of the first five verses of that psalm, every one of them intercedes with God on behalf of Christ, our anointed king. Now, you and I mostly tend to think of Christ praying for us, perhaps. And he does. But this psalm has us praying for him. St. Augustine puts it this way. He explains that in this psalm, he says, it's not Christ who's speaking here. The prophet, he says, speaks to Christ under the form of wishing foretelling things to come. The kind of prayer that Peter, James, and John should have prayed in the garden but didn't remember because they were too tired, that's the prayer that we offer when we read or sing this psalm. We're praying for the unassuming God made flesh. Verse 1, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Once we see here a prayer for our king, a prayer for his kingdom, we also see how graciously God has answered him. After all, God did hear Christ when he called to him in trouble in the garden. God heard him by delivering him from death, raising him from the dead. The letter to the Hebrews, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up his prayers and supplications with loud cries, with tears, to him who was able to save him from death. And we then read, he was heard because of his reverence. Now the same counts for each and every one of those prayers in the first part of this psalm. God did offer Jesus his help. God did remember his offering. God did grant him his heart's desire. God did fulfill his petitions. But all of which we read in that first part of the psalm. After all, what was his heart's desire? What was the aim of his petitions? It was all about us. It centered everything he came to say and do. Centered on us. Our king prayed for the future of his kingdom. He prayed that you and I might find eternal salvation in him, our king, our kingdom. He prayed for you and me to be united to him. You know, it's a silly Pelagian notion that we would be building the kingdom of God. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, says the psalmist. 
He does not recommend it. For the kingdom of God is unlike any human kingdom. It is ruled by an unassuming king. It comes in the unassuming form of a seed. Are we afraid sometimes that this kingdom is not going to make it? Are we nervous about the forces that line up against this kingdom? Are we worried that we won't have the strength to follow this king to live by the rules of his kingdom? Of course we are. But that's why we have this psalm, Psalm 20. Three times we have here the word answer. First time, first verse. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Last time, last verse. We ask God there not just to hear Jesus' prayer, but also to hear our own. May he answer us when we call. So the first verse we say to Jesus, may he answer you. The last verse we say to ourselves, may he answer us. Both are prayers for the kingdom. All of our prayers end up being one and the same. Thy kingdom come. And then look at the very middle of the song. There in the center in verse 8, the word answer comes up yet again. This time not as a prayer, this time as a word of assurance. Now I know, says the psalmist, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven. Now I know he will answer him. What happened? What happened for the psalmist to say suddenly, now I know he will answer? The psalm doesn't explicitly say yet. We're left in no doubt. We all realize why the psalmist is so confident God will answer. That the unassuming king will bring worldwide justice the unassuming kingdom will yield fields of grain covering the earth. Everything ready for harvest. The confidence comes not from ourselves. You and I cannot, will not bring in the kingdom. This confidence has everything to do with the one who's listening, the one who's giving an answer. 
It has to do with the name of the Lord. Just as the word answer comes up three times in this psalm, so the word name does three times. Verse 1. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Verse 5. May we, in the name of our God, set up our banners. Then verse 7. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. That name, that identity is the guarantee of our prayer. The guarantee of the future of the kingdom. It's true. You and I would have never anointed David king. You and I would have never taken a seed to explain the kingdom. But perhaps that is why you and I are not in charge. Perhaps that is why the one thing we really need to do is pray. Thy kingdom come. Prayer is an unassuming job for sure. And because it's such a lowly job, we easily let it slip. But this unassuming job is the one thing that truly fits an unassuming God. A God who becomes our shepherd king. A God who becomes a seed producing fruit that is eternal. Amen. I invite you now and